BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Frank Bruni. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. Today, a conversation about where we stand with COVID-19. Can the U.S. still contain its spread, or are we already defeated? Then, nearly a fifth of all Americans identify as Catholic. But can their church say, Black Lives Matter? Frank, welcome back. Hey, Ross. So I think our listeners may be especially glad to hear your voice after last week's all conservative spectacular in which I was the <laughs> moderate, the moderate squish arguing with more pro-Trump conservatives. Did you did you give it a listen? Uh, I did. And all conservative spectacular was not the phrase that came immediately to mind. It was it was an interesting experience, Ross. That's all I can ask. Frank. I wanted I wanted to be there. I wished I could have inserted myself ever so briefly just to kind of ask your guests who seemed to think Trump had done a good job managing the pandemic, what they make of our world leading <laughs> case counts and death totals and how they explain that. But seriously, though, I agreed with many listeners who wrote in and said that it was a discussion they wouldn't normally get to hear. It's the kind of thing that they hope to hear when they turn to our show, something that hadn't crossed their radar before and they might not have thought of. And I want to, if it's okay, Russ, I want to read what one reader named Donna wrote in, because I thought it was very interesting. She says, I found the latest right-wing coup episode one of your best ever. I like to hear both sides of an argument. Your show provides that to an extent, but Ross often seems outnumbered and ganged up on by Michelle and Frank. I would like to know more about far-right views, but it's difficult for me to listen to Fox News opinion segments or AM talk radio for all the interruptions, over-speaking, and name-calling. So that's a pretty great endorsement, Ross. There's very little name-calling on our show, and we're proud of it. No, you and I only call each other names after we turn off the microphones. Yeah, or I'm our kidding. producers call, bo- call both, of us, both of us terrible names. Well, that's for sure, yeah. Well, I appreciate Donna's take. Um, I know not every listener probably had the same take. And I suspect Michelle herself probably had a slightly different one. But she's off this week, and I will be suspiciously and conveniently on vacation next week. So it'll be a little while before I get to hear her take. Anyway, let's get to this week's episode. For our first segment, we're joined by Janine Interlandi, who writes about health and science for Opinions Editorial Board and for The New York Times Magazine. Listeners may remember her voice from way back in March when we were wondering if quarantine would last through the end of that month. Back then, Janine told us to hunker down. She said the virus wasn't likely to go anywhere through at least the end of the year. And at the time, that seemed, well, for a lot of people, tough to imagine. And yet here we are, still in limbo, waiting on a vaccine with more than 5 million cases since March, more than 162,000 dead, the federal government gridlocked, and a state-by-state patchwork of rules for reopening businesses, schools, and more. I think back in March, it still seemed possible that the American response could be more effective than Western Europe's. But now, at least pending a second wave across the Atlantic, our response looks definitively worse. 
So we asked Janine to come back to talk about what went wrong, what, if anything, went right, and where we go from here. So Janine, welcome back to the argument, and congratulations, I guess, on being right about everything. Ha, uh, thank you for having me back. Happy to be here. Uh, Not happy to be right about any of that stuff. Hey, Janine, great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So I actually was not here for that episode, mostly because I was ill with something that might have been COVID-19 myself. So can you just start by giving us a sketch of what's happened between March and now, and also how, if anything, have your views of the underlying situation changed? What I think happened is that we did not shut down sufficiently enough. We were too quick to reopen, and we didn't employ any of the very basic measures that public health experts were calling for sufficiently enough to get things under control, and I think we're still not doing that. To the second part of my question, has anything changed in your assessment of the disease itself in terms of its lethality, how it spreads, things like that? I did not expect that asymptomatic transmission was as much of a problem as it has turned out to be. Uh, So I think I've changed on that. Definitely a lot of evolution in mine and everyone else's thinking on mask wearing. You know, I'm not proud to admit that I think back then I was certainly someone who was saying the masks don't protect you very much. You know, they might stop you from, from transmitting it. But if you don't think asymptomatic transmission is a problem, then why would you, you know, advocate mask wearing? And given that we had such low supplies and, and hospitals were running out, you know, my position in the beginning was very much like save the actual masks uh, for people who need them, for frontline workers. And, you know, you don't actually need to go out and buy those and start hoarding them. So I've definitely changed uh, how I think about that. Janine, Ross's introduction made clear that you were prescient in some ways here. You thought that this would be with us for a while. You thought we're going to have to hunker down. I'm curious, what aspect of the country's response to this has most surprised you and what's most infuriated you? And they may be the same thing. You know, one of the things that's actually surprised me is how quickly Americans have gotten on board with the idea of mask wearing and even social distancing. You know, we in the media, and for understandable reasons, make a lot of the anti-mask contingent and of all the pushback against uh, basic sound public health advice. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that recent surveys have shown 60 to 70 percent of Americans uh, are totally on board with mask wearing, actually want stricter control measures in place, um, and still trust public health experts. And that's really heartening, and it's been surprising. When you say that, I find myself wondering, do you feel that if our leaders could all get on the same page, show some consistency that Americans are actually ready to tackle this thing, but they lack the leadership? I think that consistent messaging is hugely, hugely important. You know, the CDC has a playbook for how to communicate during a pandemic or during any, you know, like just national health crisis. And one of the key principles is consistent messaging and consistent communication, you know, just because it's a new era or a different era than the last time we had a global disease outbreak. You know, we have the internet, we have social media, doesn't mean that you throw that principle out the window. You know, there's so many people there that are on the fence and they're, they don't know what information to believe. And so when you have lots of conflicting messages, not just out in the ether or off in cyberspace, but coming from officials talking on national television, you know, it makes it really hard for people to know what to do. And it gives anybody who's skeptical and out to just kind of pick whatever advice uh, best suits their mood or their opinion. And so when you have people speaking with one voice, I think you cut a lot of that noise out and it makes it a lot easier for people to figure out like what the right course of action is. And the fact that with so much mixed messaging and so much confusion, we've gotten to 60 to 70 percent of mask wearing, I feel like imagine how much better we could do. 
But there's also the problem, right, as you just suggested, it's hard to have a consistent message when your knowledge of the disease is itself evolving. Yeah, so we went sure. from an initial period where public health authorities were focused on hand-to-hand surface transmission, where everybody was talking about washing your hands and, you know, terms like fomites were getting thrown around. And now, months in, we're in a situation where airborne transmission seems much more important. And, and there, was a, there was a period of time, it didn't last incredibly long, but there was a period of time when certain segments of the internet were more trustworthy about whether to use a mask than were official public health pronouncements. And it just seems like that's a challenge that there's no playbook to deal with, right? Your, your assessments evolve and you have to change your statements and then you look like you're being inconsistent. And it's, it's hard to... It's hard to map out a way to avoid that in advance, except being maybe a little more cautious in how much you talk down mask wearing. Yeah, I think so. But I also I don't think that the fog of war, you know, as we refer to it, mentality or just the idea that in the beginning of an outbreak, especially with a completely novel pathogen, the idea that we don't know everything and we're going to make missteps is inconsistent with the principle of communicating consistently, right? Like part of consistent communication is being open and honest about what you don't know. And then, you know, as you learn more and say, okay, we turns out we were wrong about this. Here's how we're shifting course. Like that's actually part of consistent and open communication right? Like that's part of how you combat misinformation is to be honest about what you don't know and to correct for it as you go along, right? Um, And you're right. It also does mean a bit of humility and a bit of caution when you're issuing guidelines. Hey, Gina, I want to ask you a question because I think there's some difference of opinion between you and Ross that I'd like to get to, which is if you were writing the script for what this country does over the next four to six weeks, what would that script look like? And then I really want to hear Ross's response to it. Okay, so if I'm writing the script from scratch or just from the point that we're at now, I think the first thing I want is much better data and much better use of data. So I want states and localities to make all of the information they have public. I want the CDC to work aggressively with them to make that information useful. And then I want state and local officials, if not federal officials, to take that information, to take that data and to use it to create sort of like you know, individual states and and localities have done this. Harris County, Texas did a great job at this, um, basically creating a color-coded threat assessment that tells officials and citizens like exactly what they need to do based on how extensively the virus is spreading in their communities. So one of the things that people have argued a lot about is, you know, you can't have a nationwide lockdown like that doesn't work because some places you have really bad outbreaks and other places you don't have anything. And all you do is breed resentment in the communities that don't have bad outbreaks, right? And then people don't want to follow anything and they get fatigued. Well, if you used data to actually create some sort of forecast or assessment of like how the virus is actually spreading in given communities, it could be a nationwide kind of response system, but it's employed locally. So I think that's the first thing I would want to see. And then from there, you know, the very next thing is you to get that data as accurate as possible, you need much more testing. And so I want to see much more ramping up of testing. And, you know, it's, it's kind of tiresome to even say that because we've been talking about this since March, but it's still a huge problem. It still takes, you know, up to two weeks or longer to get test results back in some places. And that makes the testing itself, you know, almost pointless. If it takes that long to find out what the results are, you know, why bother getting tested? So I want to see more of that. And I think there's a lot the federal government could do that it's not doing or it hasn't done um, to, to improve the testing situation. What could the federal government do more of on testing? Again, like I, I, I feel weird saying these things because we've been saying them for so long, but they remain true. Um, you know, we have the Defense Production Act for a reason. We also have provisions that allow for patent overrides and we should be using those things. If not now, then when? Like, why do those things exist? They exist for exactly these situations. There are some companies that have developed rapid point of care tests that 
from all of the sourcing I have, pretty accurate, really good tests could solve a lot of the problems. But the companies that develop those tests can't make enough of them uh, to deploy them across the country in a way that would be meaningful. So what the government needs to do is step in and say, we're going to take this patent because you don't have the ability to produce it at the level that we need. We're going to compensate you fairly for it. And then we're going to task several companies across the country under the Defense Production Act with making this product at scale and getting it out as quickly as possible. You know, would that solve every problem tomorrow? No. Could you produce every test that you possibly needed in the country in a week? No, but you should be trying to do those things. And if you did, we'd be in a much better place than we are right now. There was an interview with Bill Gates a few days ago. I don't know if you saw it, where he was very angry about many different things related to testing. But one one point he made that he thought was interesting was that he's arguing that these testing companies are getting paid large sums of money, public money in many cases, for test results, but not for timeliness of test results, right? And he was saying you should not pay, basically, you should only reimburse companies that are delivering test results within 24 to 72 hours. That's a fantastic idea. And other people have floated that to me. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Like you start tying reimbursement levels to how long it takes to get the testing results. And guess what? Companies are going to figure out how to get those results a lot faster. So I want to go back to the first thing you said about lockdowns, right? You said we didn't lock down well enough and long enough. And those, I think those are slightly separate things. So I want to, I want to ask you more about that. Do you think that the problem was our lockdowns just, you know, needed to go on an extra month in most states and reopening should have been slower? Or do you think that we didn't achieve the scale of lockdown in terms of, you know, people not leaving their homes at all um, that some countries in Western Europe at least attempted? Or do you think it's both? I think it's absolutely both of those things. The numbers I've seen are like we had, you know, if you look at a place where we had really good lockdown, it was essentially 50% compared with like, you know, I think it was 80 or 90% I saw of lockdown in countries where they've successfully not only flattened the curve, but actually turned it downward. So they had, you know, just much more stringent controls. And, you know, they had things like, you know, roadblocks and you can't leave a community. And if you do, you know, they're tracking, you know, if you're going from one state to another, we didn't have that here. We had people in New York fleeing, leaving, going to vacation homes. We had people going down to Florida. We had people traveling. Like we didn't, you know, we still had public transportation. And, you know, I think we needed to do a lot more in certain places than we did. And I recognize absolutely that that's really tricky because every time you tighten the lockdown procedures, you know, you hurt the economy that much more. But I would argue that by not doing that, the economy is suffering probably worse because it's dragged out a lot longer than it might have had to otherwise. I tend to agree that the initial lockdowns could have been firmer in certain ways. But I think in terms of their their length, we basically hit the plausible limit. And I think you could tell that we hit the plausible limit because of the kind of reactions that we started getting to it. Of uh, You know, both right-wing coded reactions like the anti-mask protests, but also I think the surge of political protests around the George Floyd shooting were in part a reflection of social energy that had been tamped down and maybe wouldn't have burst out in that particular way without that kind of provocation, but would have burst out in some way over the summer. I feel like you couldn't run the lockdown for multiple months, especially, and this also goes back to the question of messaging, but you know, the initial messaging was, we're going to do this for a few weeks and the goal is to flatten the curve, right? And there's always been this this conflict and this uncertainty, I think, in public messaging about whether the goal is flattening the curve and sort of extending the epidemic in a way that doesn't overwhelm hospitals and gives us more time to get treatments and eventually gives us more time to get a vaccine versus suppression, 
right? Versus trying to actually stamp out the virus. But there's a third thing there. It's not just that. It's, you know, you're not just flattening the curve. What you're trying to do is get certain things in place so that you can manage the outbreaks more smartly, right? So if you do a shutdown in a smart way, you're supposed to be building up your testing capacity, your contact tracing capacity, your isolation and quarantine, which we never did enough of. Um, you're supposed to build those things up so that when you do reopen, you can actually monitor more effectively and keep flare-ups from becoming, you know, outbreaks all over again. And we didn't do any of those things. So it's, it's we, you know, Americans made huge sacrifices in abiding by the lockdowns to the extent that they did, and the federal government betrayed them by not using that time as effectively as it should have. I got to tell you, as I listen to the two of you, I feel such a sense of surrender and failure. I hear both of you saying in different ways, we can't really do aggressive lockdowns going forward because we just don't have it in us. But it turned out we kind of really didn't have it in us if we're talking about the whole country in those first months. And I just I'm haunted by the sense that that all of this has revealed some fundamental shortcomings and flaws in the American character that are the principal explanation, along with failed political leadership, for our world leading exceptional status and the number of infections and deaths. So I I would speak up for the American character a little bit. I mean, I think that, yes, we did not have the scale of lockdowns that some Western European countries had. I also think, though, that the scale that they had was in some cases, effectively overly repressive. And like you had cops chasing people out of parks in rural parts of England and things like that, that I think were never going to fly in the US. And also the country really did shut down its entire economy, not for a week, but for several months, taking on its own set of significant costs of kids out of school and, you know, people dealing with depression and mental illness and all kinds of things. We really did do that. And we did, in fact, flatten the curve, right? I mean, that's that's the that's the, uh, the odd thing about all of in, this. Is that in some in some places and, and, and in some places only yeah, briefly. And, and for really short periods of time, like, you know, I, the piece I did for the magazine was on Harris County, Texas. They had aggressive stay at home orders when Governor Abbott allowed the localities to kind of manage the response. Harris County was one place that really had pretty aggressive stay at home orders. And they had really consistent messaging and they actually did flatten the curve and started to get a downturn. But what happens is like none of the surrounding communities did the same thing. And eventually Governor Abbott stepped in and said, you know, no, you you can't do this. You can't mandate masks. You can't do X, Y and Z. And then what you saw was like they lost all of those gains that they had made. And I think that's the story in a lot of places. Well, but but I guess I'm trying to stress the difference between suppression, where we very clearly failed. And I mean, I guess I have a sort of twofold view of this, right? I think the central government completely failed. I think President Trump obviously completely failed. I think there was an opportunity for substantial suppression that would have required major contact tracing. It would have required, as Janine says, testing to be to be, you know, much not just ramped up, we did eventually ramp it up, but to ramp it up sooner and get results back faster. And we haven't been able to achieve that. And it probably would have required more aggressive quarantine measures, state travel restrictions, like she said, people in COVID hotels earlier on, all of that, all of that we we failed at. Well, that's what you're that's what I'm saying, Ross. What I'm saying, though, is that at the start of the epidemic, the public rhetoric was the danger is that every part of the U.S. is going to be like New York City ended up being, where you're going to have a really, really high case fatality rate because hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. Doctors aren't going to be able to treat patients. And, you know, you're going to end up with basically that soaring spike of deaths that you got in New York City everywhere. And that has not happened. 
And it hasn't happened in the places like like Texas and Florida and the Southwest that have had new outbreaks. Those outbreaks have been bad, but they have looked like the curve on the initial charts that we had, not the spike, but the slower curve that rises and falls. And it's a tragedy that we didn't achieve more than that. But we also have not had a situation where everywhere has turned out like New York City. Nothing, nothing close to that right now. So I would argue that the at the outset, the fear, it wasn't every place is going to be New York City. It was going to be, we're going to have lots of different outbreaks. And basically what you're talking about is like a lot of this is preventable if we use just the basic public health measures that we have now. So, you know, we don't have to wait for technology that doesn't exist. If we do these things, we can save a lot of lives. And guess what? Most of those lives are going to be in low-income communities, communities of color, in really marginalized places where they don't have good hospitals in their communities. So, you know, that's the issue I would take with that. I mean, all due respect, Ross, when I listen to you talk, I kind of don't hear the full recognition that tens of thousands of Americans yeah. who might not have had to die, died here. Died. Yeah. I don't think we can kind of get so deep in the weeds and about this, about that, but this is the way we are. I don't think we can skate over that so easily, but I want to ask you a question then I want to get Janine's response to. Do you, this is about kind of America, how we've responded and kind of failed in a way other countries haven't. This is about the American character. Ross, do you think we have found the right balance between famous American individualism and communal protection, communal concern? No, I don't. I think that we could have had more communal protection and more communal concern. But I do think lots and lots of people expected us to have not a New York level epidemic everywhere, but multiple New Yorks, multiple versions of the mountain of deaths that Andrew Cuomo bizarrely put on a poster celebrating how New York handled things. (laughs) And we have not had that. New York and the Northeast generally is a distinct and tragic curve. And the other curves, as bad as they've been, have not been that bad. And that is a testament, I think, to real public health achievements and real sacrifices that Americans made. Even in the places that maybe reopened too early and so on, you've still had social distancing. You've still had mask wearing. And the other thing I'm just trying to stress is that viruses are really unpredictable and hard to contain. And those challenges are real and they don't go away just by having better leadership in the White House than we've we've unfortunately had. And I guess the final thing, and and here I'm I'm really curious about Janine's take, there are a lot of questions about where you actually reach herd immunity. And there's a sort of lively debate about whether, at least with the kind of social distancing we still have in place, we might be at like New York City might be at a de facto herd immunity with around 20 or 25 percent. I don't I don't agree with infected, that at all. Right? I don't agree. With OK, that. so tell me. So tell me. Tell me why that view is wrong. Uh, well, OK, so first of all, you know, I think herd immunity is a little bit misunderstood as a concept, right? It's the threshold at which enough people in a given population become immune to a virus that it can no longer cause huge outbreaks. But we normally calculate that based on a standardized intervention like vaccination, right? When we talk about herd immunity as a scientific concept, we're almost always talking about vaccination, how many people need to get vaccinated. That is not the same thing as herd immunity or as an ongoing real-time infectious disease outbreak. So for the latter, it's actually much tougher to say what the threshold would actually be. And you're correct that some studies have cited 20%, but many more people seem to think it's going to be closer to 60%, 70%, 80%, right? So it's going to be much higher than 20%. And the bottom line really is that we just don't know. So I think that's like one reason is kind of absurd to talk about herd immunity as a strategy. But realistically, like most people don't think it's going to be 20%. They think it's going to be significantly higher. So that's the first thing that I would say about that. I'm not advocating for it as a strategy. Okay. I'm arguing that we should observe it if it seems to be happening as a reality. 
Sweden was held up as the sort of control group for the virus early on, the country in the West that was doing the least to contain it. And the Swedish curve has, without strong interventions, has itself bent down to the point where Sweden looks like a low transmission U.S. state at this point. And Sweden is a data point for the argument that you could get herd immunity at 20 or 25 percent. I, I don't think that they've actually done very well, right? They have higher infection rates than their neighboring countries. They have a pretty high mortality rate. I don't think they're anywhere near herd immunity. In fact, I think, you know, there was an open letter written by, I think, 20 or 30 epidemiologists, including some from inside Sweden, saying they're not even close to herd immunity. Uh, there's still high susceptibility in the larger population, and their economy doesn't appear to be doing much better than their neighbors' economies, uh, you know, for the strategy that they took. So I, I want to be clear on what I'm saying. I don't think the Swedish strategy has contained the virus more effectively than their neighbors. Okay. It, clear, it clearly has not. So what are you saying? I'm saying that if you look at a chart right now of Swedish, Sweden total cases and daily new cases and total deaths, the death line has flattened, the total case line has almost flattened, and daily new cases have done a big arc and now are very low. Sweden has death rates that are worse than Denmark and Norway that did severe lockdowns, but its death rates are not nearly as bad as some of the worst centers of the epidemic. That cries out for an explanation. So I'm just saying, I think there are a lot of data points right now that suggest that something maybe limits the virus's spread at around that 25% threshold. I take you at your word that what the Swedish curve looks like right now, I don't think that that in any way implies that the herd immunity threshold there or anywhere else is necessarily 20%. I think there's about 5,000 different potential explanations for that. I don't think it's a leap from they've managed to bend the curve down to they have herd immunity. And I think, you know, also to your earlier point, like... Well, I want to be clear, there's herd immunity for the level of social distancing we have now. Yeah, right? herd so immunity if you is not a fixed number, just like... Exactly. exactly. Yeah, so right. that's fine. But what I was arguing earlier, right, like you want to make decisions about what things need to be closed down, what things can be reopened, how much social distancing you need, how important, you know, whether you want mask wearing indoors, outdoors, everywhere based on what the case positivity rate is in a given area, right? Now, if you're basing it on the data, then you're doing it the right way, whether you're at a thing that you can reasonably define as herd immunity or not is kind of incidental, right? So I don't think like, I, I feel like you're arguing for herd immunity as a strategy, even though I know you say you're not. I'm just, I'm not sure how else to understand that. No, I think, I think we agree. I think, I think it's a question about, I think it's a question about, I think it's a question about, our level of, in part, it's a question about our level of optimism going forward and how bad we expect the disease to get in the fall. I think that we agree that you want a sort of basically a data-driven assessment of the disease's prevalence in your community. And that that is, I, I agree, that's more important than a theory of herd immunity that might be proven wrong. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think we know the number for for SARS-CoV-2 at all. And I, I just don't think it's going to end up being near 20% based on what I've seen. The other thing I would point out is, you know, in places like New York and like, I think in most of the Northeastern United States, like studies have shown, um, the thing that they seem to have done right is to be much slower to open indoor dining and to open bars. And I think New York City yes. is particularly good at that. And I think that's why things are much better in the Northeast than they are in other parts of the country. But again, that goes back to you know, not throwing your hands up or saying, you know, it's great that we're also libertarian here. It's it's basically based on data. So based on data, we're not going to open the bars and restaurants and we're going to be able to maybe open the schools in the fall. Right. It's a trade off. Well, and that'll be that, I guess, can be our last question for you, which is should the schools open in the fall? 
again, I think it should be based on data. And I think if you do it based on the data and you say, okay, you know, we have to have a certain positivity rate uh, to safely open the schools, what you're going to find quickly from there is, okay, how do we get to that positivity rate? Well, the first thing you have to do is think about whether you want to keep your indoor dining open, whether you want to keep your bars open. Um, And then, you know, I think the conclusion is that you probably don't. But in practice, it seems like a lot of places have have chosen indoor dining and bars over schools. And you also have a dynamic where you have certain states that maybe have a transmission spread rate that is low enough to reopen schools aren't reopening them. This seems to be happening in the mid-Atlantic. And then states that have a higher transmission rate, Georgia, Texas, and so on, are opening them, right? So I think there's a wariness about just following the data on in liberal states as well as conservative states and the sort of polarization that, you know, that once Trump said, let's open the schools, <laughs> suddenly there That's was political pressure, p- political pressure not to open them in places that could. You have these two kind of conflicting things in play at the same time, right? On one hand, it's extreme fatigue on the part of everybody. I don't care what your political persuasion is. Like, you're fatigued right now, right, from all of the closures and, and just the abnormal existence we've had. And then on the other hand, if you have gains and you've managed to get to a place, you know, if, if you live in Manhattan, like I do, where you're not hearing ambulances go down your street literally every five minutes and you're terrified to even just go outside, you're terrified of losing those gains, right? So you have this kind of terror and also this fatigue happening at the same time. And I think that's part of where we're at. Well, I think terror and fatigue (laughs) is a good place to uh, close this discussion. Janine, thank you so much. Thanks. This was fun. Janine, we'll have you back at Christmas when we'll all have herd immunity and we'll look forward to that. Our holiday special. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Welcome back. We're going to talk about American Catholicism, which in an age of polarization is a rare institution that sprawls across our political divide. It's a church with a progressive-leaning pope and a conservative American hierarchy. It's the church of Attorney General William Barr and of Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president. It cuts across class. It cuts across ethnicity, which means that it's uniquely cross-pressured. To talk about some of those pressures, we've invited our colleague, Liz Brunig. Liz, thanks so much for joining us on the argument today. Thanks for having me on. Liz, you recently wrote an op-ed about American Catholicism's unease with the Black Lives Matter movement. Racism makes a liar out of God was the terrific headline on your extremely interesting piece. Tell us about the argument you made. Well, thanks very much. 
I was interviewing Gloria Purvis, who's a black Catholic journalist, in a sense, in that she has run a broadcast radio show on EWTN, which is the largest Catholic media distributor in the world. She's also had a television show. And one of EWTN's local affiliates, the Guadalupe Radio Network in Texas, which is, I believe, one of their largest affiliates, if not the largest, dropped her show after the murder of George Floyd because she began to speak out quite vociferously about racism. And my response to that was just that it it wasn't particularly Catholic of them, that she wasn't saying anything unorthodox, that everything she was saying is completely evinced and held up by church teaching. And so I just don't think it should be that hard for Catholics to look at the claims being made, put aside various organizations, whether you like certain figureheads and so on and so forth, and just focus on the arguments emerging from this movement. And I think they're pretty easy to endorse for a Catholic. I don't see the hang up. So why then do you think she was dropped? How do you explain it? Is is that about racism? Is it about particular and peculiar discomfort with Black Lives Matter? What's going on? I think it's probably uh, somewhat to do with particular discomfort with Black Lives Matter. And I think quite a lot of it has to do with the fact that having uncomfortable conversations doesn't necessarily make for good radio, right? People don't like to sit around and listen to people really hash out issues of life and death import. And she has co-hosts who sometimes have, you know, friendly disagreements with her because that can be very distressing to hear. The same reason people don't want to have those conversations interpersonally. And so I think it was a combination of that and sort of widespread conservative mistrust of the Black Lives Global Network, this organization that has laid claim to the phrase Black Lives Matter, which of course preceded it. One thing I wanted to ask you before we went on any further is is when we're talking about the Catholic Church, what are we really talking about and, and how much meaning does that phrase have? And what I mean by that is I would probably be an upholster's box as a Catholic because I was raised in the Catholic Church, although I drifted far, far away. I believe you are a convert to Catholicism. Ross has his own relationship to Catholicism. There are Catholics who care about what the Pope says, and there are Catholics who never look in his direction. So what do we mean here by the Catholic Church? Well, it's a global institution, and so every every Catholic's uh, response to, to various world goings-on is going to be different. Um, and I, I think when we we're talking about the Catholic Church in this context, we refer to a number of things. The Catholic Church refers to, at times, the hierarchy, the church authorities. Uh, it, it, at times, refers to the laity, everyone who is baptized Catholic and receives the sacraments and is confirmed in the church. And then at times, it refers to the internal logic, the tradition, the rules of the Catholic Church. It, it takes all of those things to constitute it. So I think we're always referring to a sort of mixture of things there. In many ways, the church feels incredibly weak at this moment, and its sort of sprawl seems like part of its weakness, right? That it's sort of, you know, you know, it's it's been through a period of decline. It had the sex abuse crisis. It's had this sort of internal argument over its own teachings that, you know, for my sins, I've been involved in. And so things like the Black Lives Matter movement come along, and there's no 
there's no sort of Catholic authority figure sort of or authority figures capable of saying, okay, we're going to harness the church's um, sprawl and spread to support this movement or to critique this movement or some or somewhere in between. And instead, you get this sort of very American, I guess, kind of entrepreneurial thing where certain people appoint themselves as spokesmen for Catholicism. And, you know, you get, you know, you have sort of these particular clashes like the one around Gloria Purvis, but there's no sense of sort of Catholicism as something that's capable of coming together and playing a dynamic role at this moment. Although, but Liz, you sort of end your piece by suggesting that the bishops could do that, right? To some extent? Well, the bishops could put the hierarchy behind the March for Black Life in Washington, D.C., which is what the open letter calls for, is for the bishops to join that march. What the bishops can't do is they can't make anyone like it. And the church teaching already supports it. So that's two out of three. It's not bad. But American Catholics, and at this point, Catholics all over the world, especially in North America and Europe, I mean, these are liberal subjects. So their approach to Catholicism is not the approach to Catholicism that someone alive during the Counter-Reformation would have taken. It's an approach to Catholicism that's informed by the general ideological atmosphere around here, which is, I decide what sounds good to me, and I discard what doesn't, and I am the sovereign of myself, and I operate within certain parameters, but uh, very little is binding on me. And so you have some American Catholics who say, okay, if the hierarchy says we do it, and it, it matches the church teaching, then, then we do it. It doesn't really matter if it matches our other intuitions. So let me, let me push you a little bit on the dilemma here. I, I'm going to quote a not African-American, but African Cardinal Wilfred Napier, uh, who's from South Africa. Um, that's not the one I was expecting. That's not the one you were expecting, who, and <laughs> who, is himself, who is himself black. And he tweeted recently, this is, how, this is how the hierarchy of the church now manifests itself in tweets. But he tweeted, Black Lives Matter creates real conflict of conscience. The mission statement of BLM, GNF, that's the organization you were talking about earlier, advocates views on marriage and family that are totally repugnant to Catholic teaching, as are the actions of its activists. Yet there is an urgent need to expose all injustice against people of color, right? So this, this I think, you know, coming from outside the U.S., but it still, I think, distills the dilemma for, for, for Catholics who are maybe more sympathetic to, um, like the cause of criminal justice reform or police reform than some of the people who wanted Gloria Purvis's show canceled. But I'd say the, the sort of current protest politics in its organizational and institutional forms and see a movement that is much more secular and left-wing than was, for instance, the civil rights movement at its peak, right? Like it's not emerging out of the African-American church. It's its rhetoric emerges out of an academic milieu that is, you know, I think it's fair to say pretty hostile to traditional Christianity and Catholicism. 
and as you just mentioned, sort of in the penumbra of these riots, you get a lot of attacks on churches, not tons and tons, but there's been a real uptick in vandalism of Catholic churches, some of it focused on figures like St. Junipero Serra, who's, you know, a controversial figure for reasons related to the treatment of Native Americans under the mission system in California. But some of it is just sort of more all-purpose, right? Sort of acts of vandalism that just knock the head off a statue of, of the Virgin Mary or something. And so it seems like there is actually some dilemma here, right, where you're trying to figure out how do you lend your support to the cause of racial justice without ending up just as sort of a religious ally of a movement that is pretty, pretty hostile to Catholicism. Well, I mean, I don't think that the attacks on churches and statues have been anti-Catholic in particular. They tend to be people who are upset about, as you said, sort of Spanish colonialism, the treatment of Native Americans under the Spanish colonial regime. Uh, so there have been attacks on missions. There have been attacks on statues of St. Junipero Serra. With, with any protest, with any protest, especially of this size, you're going to get some delinquent sort of vandalism that has nothing to do with the protest at all. It's just people... Uh, doing things they cannot normally do and kind of having a libidinal moment there where they go a little crazy. I think quarantine has compounded this already existing tendency. Um, but I, I wouldn't look at it as these people are anti-Catholic. They want the Catholic church destroyed. Like that may well be in the case of some people. If you're on the internet, you hear from those people every day. Um, but I've, I've never I've never heard from those people. <laughs> I don't I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Who could they possibly be? We could probably rattle off some handles. Um, but in reality, it seems like, you know, you look at polling, the majority of black people are Christians. And so it's not it's not the case that um, the black people who are calling for an end to police violence uh, are dead set on the destruction of the nuclear family or whatever. That might be the case with these activists who are writing the copy. But the Black Lives Matter Global Network is not a membership organization. Right? You, you don't have to pay dues. And if you don't pay your dues, you can't show up to the protest. The organizing efforts against anti-racism uh, don't require you to participate in whatever efforts there are or may be. Uh, to, you know, destroy statues or undermine the church. On the other hand, uh, the church is pretty good at undermining itself, so it doesn't really need any help. So when someone like Andrew Sullivan, whom you mentioned in your column, says Black Lives Matter and Catholicism are incompatible, is he kind of focusing on a detail that is less meaningful than he's making it out to be? I think his complaint was that the Black Lives Matter global network is Marxist. And that you can't be a Marxist and a Catholic. You can, actually. I have this on good authority. In a very, in a very complicated way, sort of way. You know, they, <laughs> Marxism can be said in many ways, as I imagine Aquinas would have put it. Um, and so, you know, I, I tend to think that uh, people like uh, Andrew would probably not be in favor of this movement in any universe. Right. And so the Catholicism issue is, uh, you know, an opportunity to make a shell argument that's not substantive, right? It's about something else. It's a, it's a procedural objection. Oh, well, I would, but I have all these other things that, that I have to subscribe to ahead of this, so I can't. Well, okay, but 
people are not wrong to look at the current moment of protest and say, well, this seems to be about not just racism and police brutality, but also a kind of substantial reordering of elite American institutions, for instance, right, in ways that, you know, are sort of much more secular and left-wing than movements that the Catholic Church usually associates itself with for and more hostile to not just Catholic beliefs on one particular issue, but the wider panoply of beliefs, right? Right. No, I, I think that's, that's true. I think that no institution coming out of American soil shares the aims of the Catholic Church. These are all liberal institutions. Their aims are circumscribed by the uh, event horizon of temporality, right? The, so this is to say the goals of all of the uh, institutions that come out of American thought and American life, these are liberal institutions that have goals that are sort of utilitarian uh, or they have to do with sort of freedom and equality. And those are aspects of Catholic teaching. They're certainly not the end goal of Catholic teaching. Um, so then the question is, how distant is this particular movement from Catholic church teaching and how distant can a movement be before we have to completely abandon it? And I would say that all that's required is a little of, you know, that uh, good old discernment that we hear about so often, especially from our Jesuit friends, uh, which would be paying attention to what aspects of the movement are being foregrounded and in what way you're being asked to support it. So if there is, say, a referendum in your city on uh, police funding or the ways in which police can or should uh, try to de-escalate uh, as opposed to uh, defaulting to violence or body cams or something like that, you can go ahead and think, what is the best way to cast a vote here that is going to hopefully create a more equitable landscape in this city for the people who live here with me? You don't have to um, affirm in the strongest terms even the entirety of the movement, but to the degree that you have power as a citizen, I think it's it's probably pretty easy to exercise that in a way that comports with any racist goals. Liz, what do you make of Trump's attacks on Biden's Catholicism or on Biden's religion, which is thus implicitly as Catholicism? And do you think Biden's Catholicism factors into colors this coming election in any interesting ways? Trump is an interesting figure in that he sort of doesn't even really put up the bare pretense of being all that interested in religion. Um, <laughs> he does he, hold the, he, he does hold a Bible upside down, upside down, very photogenically. But he'll do stuff like that, which is like vaguely insulting, right? Um, and and go stand out in front of a church. And the, the tone of that is always like, you piggy sure love this slop, don't you? Lap it up. <laughs> and it's uh, it's just like a little insulting. I mean, I don't like it when any politicians talk about their religion. I've never heard one of them do it in a way that was remotely convincing. Um, and, and Trump in particular just doesn't even really bother with it, which I kind of grudgingly respect um, because it's so clearly a charade. The ones that try to be earnest about it uh, are in some ways a little more disturbing to me. But, uh, you know, he has no room to attack Joe Biden's Catholicism, the nature of which I know nothing about. And to the to the degree that it will even matter at all in the election, which I doubt it will, 
Uh, it could be good for Biden. Catholics are, you know, classic swing voters. There are lots of Catholics in swing states. Catholics typically split right down the middle, 50-50, Republican-Democrat. And if he can pull any Catholics who wouldn't have otherwise uh, given him a shot because he is Catholic, that's possible and that's interesting, I suppose. But my feeling is that American Catholicism has been so thoroughly Protestantized um, that it doesn't really matter. Uh, and, 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 and moreover, very few Protestants could tell you in what ways Catholics are morally different than they are in the United States, right? So like back in the day, uh, you know, you would have been called a, a crypto Catholic if you said something like, well, whether or not you go to heaven depends a lot on you. But this is also just like sort of common American Protestant thought at this point. Like it's rather unusual to find very uh, vocal Calvinists. And so because the lines between Catholicism and Protestantism in the United States are sort of blurred at this point, the evangelicalized Catholics on the right, and then the sort of liberalized Protestants who have kind of lost a lot of those puritanical elements of Protestantism on the left, I just don't really think it matters. It's definitely not going to be a JFK type situation. Well, and, and what you say makes me think that's one of the reasons why Trump instinctively attacked Biden's religion in the larger sense and not necessarily as Catholicism, because I think he at some level understands what you just said, which is that people don't necessarily see these bold lines where they once saw them between Protestantism and Catholicism. Trump is going for the idea, you know, which is a true idea that among white Americans, there is a real pew gap between the parties in the sense that Republicans are more likely to be churchgoers and Democrats are not. And there's an odd, you know, there's a reversal of that in the actual leaders of the parties, right? And that Trump is not a churchgoer and Joe Biden is. So Trump, in his way, is sort of going right at that and saying, oh, you think Biden's a churchgoer? Well, you know, he's he's, you know, he's against God, Right. I mean, that's sort of the it's the sort of classic <laughs> Trump like what does that know, even I mean, may not Ross? go to church, but he's but he's against God. It's the what does that even mean when he said he's against God? I mean, wh I, what does that even mean? Well, it's like when Trump was asked, you know, back back when he was first trying to figure out how to talk like a pro-lifer. Right. And he said something like about how, well, we really need to punish women who have abortions, which is not and has never been the main pro-life position on the issue. But to Trump, it seemed like something that he thought a what what he imagined a pro-life person would say. And I think you get some of that in the against God rhetoric. Yeah, Trump too. was just doing logic in that case. They were like, <laughs> he was like, wait, 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 Liz, did you really just use Trump and logic in the same? I'm not kidding. He was sitting place? there. He knows nothing about Christianity in America. He knows nothing about the pro-life movement. He's not remotely interested in any of these issues. <laughs> and so someone asks him, do you do you think that women who have abortions should be punished? So he has to come up with an answer on the spot because he has no relationship to this movement. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess they say it's murder. So, yeah. <laughs> and like, that's like very basic <laughs> well, logic he was performing there. And and again, he did the same thing with Biden, where he's like, well, damn, if you're not with him, you're against him. So the question is, are the people that Biden is competing for with Trump, the swing people that Biden needs to grab, are they really interested in hearing a bunch of uh, legitimate sounding Christian rhetoric? Or are these people who are interested in something else? 
And, and will the swing vote come down to that? I am not actually convinced that religion will play that big of a role in the swing vote. Yeah, I mean, I think Trump would have, would have been better served just attacking Biden on the issue of abortion, where Biden has actually, you know, used to be closer to the center and has moved more to the left in this campaign and just made it an issues based appeal, because I think there are a lot of Americans who are conflicted about abortion who are swing voters. I think there are fewer Americans who who don't like the I put it this way. I think the swing voters, Liz, are talking about think the basic idea of Joe Biden as a guy who goes to mass on Sunday and doesn't always agree with his church. That's them, too. Right. And so that that sort of saying that those kind of people are somehow against God is not actually it's just an attempt to mobilize people already voting for Trump not to win over the undecided. Yeah. No, we have to we have to let Liz go in a moment. But before we go, Liz, I understand you may have a recommendation for our listeners. So um, I would recommend logging off, uh, which is not to say not using your computer or whatever. It's just a tool. But get off social media. You know what I mean? I think most of the people who say log off point to the fact that there's so much misinformation and lying on the internet, uh, that it can really cloud your judgment. Um, and that's true. But worse is that there's so much true information on the internet. Um, and I don't think we're actually particularly well designed to cope with getting news of the entire world updated every 10 minutes on a live stream. I think it's extremely stressful. It's too much true information. And I think that it can lead to a real uh, sort of spiritual darkness. Um, Used to, it was the sole province of God to know a full accounting of all the human evil that was happening at any given time. Now it's the province of any Twitter user. And it's a heavy burden. So log off. I close Twitter for six hours a day at a time and have nothing to do with it. And I'm much happier knowing less. Thank you for that, Liz. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes, thank you, Liz. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So that's our show this week. Thank you all for listening. If you have a question you want to hear us debate, share it with us in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. The Argument is a production of the New York Times opinion section. The team includes Vishaka Durba, Phoebe Lent, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher and Kristen Lynn. We'll see you next week. Hey, Janine, welcome, welcome, welcome to the uh, technical wonder of the argument. I'm having so much fun right now. This is the most fun meeting I've been in all week. Wow, I that that don't you feel that sad for me? me? That, I can't. That's that's it's brutal. Tragic, that is a right? brutal assessment of your week. <laughs>